Okay, to start off, let's talk about you. Can you introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and where you are located? Sure. Thanks, Kate. First, thanks for having me here. Um, it's really exciting to see all the work that you're doing, so I'm looking forward to our conversation here. Um, a little bit about me. I have always sat at the junction of solving business problems with technology. I connect dots very quickly. And so I come from a digital transformation, big data intelligence world and seeing how that makes sense to solve business problems. And as I was building my consulting firm further to that, I helped one of the largest mobile solution providers in the world. So if your phone works anywhere in the world, somewhere in the back end, they're powering it. Um, and so I help them build their enterprise business. What that means is when they have data and intelligence, how does that apply to the larger banks in the world? Um, so at one point, eight out of the top 10 US banks were our customers and uh, it was a global business. So while I was expanding that, I happened to meet my now business partner uh, through a joint venture we were doing with his um, startup at that point of time. And in our first meeting, our one hour meeting turned into a six hour meeting of the minds. And he asked me if I would be interested in unmanned aerial systems or drones as most commonly people know it. And I'm like, no, that's not my world. I have no idea what you're talking about. This was five years ago. And now today we're flying um, the longest endurance fully electric unmanned aerial system in its size and weight category in the world and are looking to solve some massive issues such as wildlife poaching, which is what got us together. Um, and I excited about a lot of the applications um, that, you know, persistent unmanned aerial systems can solve for today and tomorrow. Wow, that is so cool. And so I know you're into technology a lot now, but were you interested in technology as a kid? So it's interesting. I grew up um, in Dubai. Um, we were, it was a melting pot similar to where I live now, which was New York till last June. And now I live in San Francisco. So um, technology is what was connecting the world in Dubai, even without realizing it. They had built things like an indoor ski resort, or they were growing strawberries in a desert. And whether we kind of However we look at it, it was technology that was helping that, right? I remember when I wrote my first Hello World code, and I was still in, um, I think, middle school when I did that. And so, um, yeah, it, it, while it wasn't ingrained the way, and I kind of realized it over time that that is what my passion is, I can really look at technology and see connections that most people can't. Um, I think the seeds were so, you know, and I, I still remember I used to watch uh, Funky Brewster and, and other shows, and you probably would have never heard of these, but in our times they were, and, and technology was, or Back to the Future, got all of us excited, right? And, uh, or the Jetsons, where you were flying cars, right? And, and so that is what I grew up on. So yes, technology had influenced my life then and was part of my life growing up. Wow. Okay, so what area of technology do you work in right now? So I work in the unmanned aerial system or drones space. And we are building an aerial network 
of unmanned aerial systems that will allow to, uh, us to connect sea, land, air, and space using these assets or drones or UAVs, as we call them, multiple names for the same thing, of fixed-wing UAVs across different altitudes. So our regular aircraft flies at 35,000 or 19,000 to 35,000 feet above ground level. We will be flying between a few thousand feet. Eventually, we'll be flying at 65,000 feet above ground level with our high-altitude pseudo-satellite platforms. Wow, your drones are so incredible. So I know your mission is to save lives. Can you tell us more mm -hmm. about this? So it's very interesting. Um, I visited Iraq when the Iran-Iraq war had just ended. I was a little kid and my parents had taken us to visit Iraq. And I noticed that there were only women and children in that country. And I had turned around to my dad and I'd asked him, um, how come there are only women and children in this country? And he'd said, this country was at war. A lot of the boys and men were at war. And as a child, that had stayed with me quite a lot and it had an impact on me. And then fast forward, I was sitting in my office when the first aircraft hit the World Trade Center when 9-11 happened. And I, on that day, lost friends, colleagues in the buildings because Cantor Fitzgerald, Marsh McLennan were our customers at that point in time. And I'd set up a 48-hour camp um, to help uh, find the missing. What I realized and why are these two connected is data and intelligence could have helped saves the lives of a lot of people if we had the right kind of data at the right time. And so when we started building what we started building and we realized that we were flying these robots and essentially they are intelligence gathering assets, right? And so if we brought the right data, right aerial intelligence to the right kind of decision makers and shrink that gap between intelligence and decision making, lives can be saved, whether that be warfighters, civilians, wildlife anti-poaching, search and rescue, disaster management, or as we talk about refugee crisis. So a lot of the things that the UN talks about in its SDG uh, goals, sustainable development goals, we're able to address them with the right kind of data and intelligence. We can provide that through persistent aerial systems. Does that make sense, Kate? Yes, that is so impactful. Okay, so now let's talk more about your drones and how they can help save our planet and help humans both prevent and recover from disasters. Okay, so to just start off, how do your drones work? So what's interesting is when we say we talk, we are building persistent non-stop UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, there is a whole play of power and energy. Essentially, we need to create more power or energy on board, so surplus energy, that can allow us to actually fly long distances, long durations, and persistently. And we, the best teacher for us on how to do that is nature. When you see birds flying long distances, they're not constantly flapping their wings. They're utilizing environmental conditions to actually allow them to fly long distances. And that's what we do with our birds. We do what is called biomimicry. So we're constantly monitoring environmental conditions and algorithmically feeding that back into our autopilot that allows the aircraft to maneuver in such a way that it can actually benefit from, say, hot air rising from the ground, which is called thermals, 
or when you're between mountains, there's again hot airs and, and different conditions. And you can utilize those for flight. When we're flying, our prop folds up, our propeller folds up. So it's not even using thrust when it's flying. Along with that, we have multi-pronged approach. So along with that, we have energy systems on board that allow us to capitalize on solar. So we have some of the most sophisticated space grade solar cells on our aircraft that allow us to generate more energy than we utilize for flight. And that's how we can support our flight as well as power hungry payloads and sensors that we carry on board. And when you apply that to disaster management, communication, we can truly change the world. Wow. And I remember just getting a drone that I controlled with remote control, and I thought that was really cool. So this drone is incredible. Okay, so how do you keep your drones in the air, and how do you get them back down? Sure. So, you know, what's interesting is when you say unmanned aerial platform, if you have a whole team of 30 people trying to operate these, whether remote control, as you said, you might not have anybody in the cockpit, but you are still, it's not truly a mat. And the whole key is reducing the operational footprint of these aircraft. And we do that by fully uh, changing the operations to fully autonomous operations. So truly we create the software, we write the software so that these drones can become intelligent platforms that are making decisions of when they take off, when are the optimal conditions to land, how do they operate in these different conditions that they operate and persistently fly without needing too much manpower in the back end. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so and how does artificial intelligence work and its AI on your drones? Sure. So you remember I said we do biomimicry, yes. where we are copying nature and what nature is doing. Um, so the intelligence that the birds have, right, when you create that kind of intelligence within a machine, that's where AI comes in. So us truly replicating the environmental conditions on board, creating a 3D map of what's happening around us, and then feeding that back into the algorithm, there is a component of AI. When we hunt for those hot air rising, the thermals, that's when, you know, when you feel turbulence a lot of times, or sometimes when you're climbing, those are when you've hit a thermal or hot air that's rising sometimes. It depends on how you're, you're, you're flying. But it's the AI on board that actually utilizes that, you know, that capitalizes on that and allows us to fly without consuming power on board. In addition, all of our components on board actually are, it's a nervous system that's being created. So every component communicates the health of the component so that we can avoid crashes. We can also do fully autonomous detection of what we are looking to follow. So when I know you've been involved in the elephant collar project, right? So we can actually, if they are connected back into the aircraft, we can fully autonomously also follow the aircraft, that follow me capability that we do. When you say AI, AI, artificial intelligence is really used across the industries where the people don't truly understand what, right? Anytime you're using intelligence on a machine and machine is make, able to make self decisions, at the end of the day, that's AI. Wow, right? okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, 
And so what kind of data do you get when your drones take flights? So there is a whole slew of data that we can get. Whether we're carrying an electro-optical camera or whether we're carrying an infrared camera. So when you are flying over at nighttime and you want to detect different heat signatures, you will carry a uh, infrared camera to actually detect that. So when we were talking about disaster management, when there is somebody strapped under a fallen building, we can fly over and actually detect if there is a heat signature and there is somebody underneath that we can help, you know, communicate back to the rescuers and they can come pull out, right? Or when we are detecting poachers at nighttime, you're able to detect uh, heat signatures and find poachers at nighttime. Along with that, when we talk about climate change monitoring, various different environmental sensors that we can carry can detect uh, gases. So when we talk about carbon monitoring, we can carry sensors that can actually monitor carbon in the environment. Or when the current administration is talking about, hey, all the oil and gas companies, you need to monitor the methane that you're emitting. We're able to carry sensors that can do that. And then when we actually are working in the communication space. So when you talked about disaster management earlier, when a disaster happens, one of the first things to go down is your communication channels. So we become cell towers in the sky by carrying the right kind of radios and payloads on board that allow us to create wireless bubbles, 4G, LTE, 5G, beyond 5G, and that we enable communication. So there's tons of use cases and tons of things you can do when you're flying beyond line of sight and long distances and, you know, persistently. Wow. And going back to how it helps detect poachers, I can imagine that it can see so much land at a time and it could really help get to get to the poacher before it gets to the animal. That's incredible. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you invented a drone that can fly higher and longer than any other. Can you explain why this is important? Sure. Um, so one of the limiting factors, right, whenever you look at technology and as technologists, a lot of times we all geek out on technology. Oh, this is so cool. What is important, especially when you marry technology with solving business problems, is you always ask, so what? So what if this technology is so cool? What does it solve for? Right. When we started looking, when I started looking in, in this industry, there were four massive issues that we realized were prohibiting some of the adoption in the commercial, in the uh, uh, actual, uh, you know, nonprofit use cases that we're solving for, such as anti-poaching or agriculture or conservation use cases. And that was how far the fixed wing UAV can travel from the operator. Like you said, I control it with the remote control. You're an operator. How long it can stay up in terms of flight time or endurance. How easy is it to integrate things into it? Is it open architecture? Can you plug and play things into it so that you can swap out payloads and the payload technology gets better? And then finally, how easy is it to operationalize it, right? Again, if you have massive resources that you need to kind of operationalize them, it's going to be very expensive and it's going to limit the use. And so we knew if we could solve for those four problems, we would be changing the game and do it in an affordable manner. And that's what we have done with the technologies that we've incorporated. And the goal of the so what we're solving for was always front and center for us. And then obviously our mission 
and the vision to bridge the gap between sea, land, air, and space with a mission to save lives is what drove us. Wow, that's so cool. And so when a disaster is coming, how can your drones help? Sure. It depends on the type of disaster, right? Every disaster has three phases. Detection, when you, how, you, how do you detect a disaster? How do you, uh, you know, stop a disaster from uh, happening or spreading? During the disaster, how do you help manage it or reduce it in, you know, w- when the disaster is happening? And the third piece of all of that is after the disaster, how do you actually help the rebuilding? So our persistent unmanned platforms can help in every stage of the disaster. Let's take an example of California wildfires, right? Uh, PG&E has to, the, the electricity, electricity company has to pay massive fines right now because of how some, some of their sparks led to a certain fire and led to a loss of life. Potentially, if we were flying over the lands in California, the parks and other areas that are susceptible for fire, we could have potentially detected an early spark and could have alerted the authorities or the firefighters so that a stop to the that fire from spreading could have happened, right? In addition, once the fire was underway, instead of sending aircraft that are manned by a pilot and sending a manned aircraft on smoke to help see where the fire is spreading, you can send our aircraft, which is unmanned, you're not endangering somebody's life and can follow long distances and help provide that information back to the firefighters so that they can come in and actually stop the fires effectively. And then finally, when it's the fires are over and rebuilding is happening, when somebody like FEMA is providing for the rebuild, of that land and other areas, you can monitor how the rebuilding is happening. You can provide that information to the insurance companies faster because you're covering long distances so they can support the families that have suffered losses, right? So there's multiple areas. And then finally, when a disaster happens, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing that goes down is communication. When the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, they had supplies, but they their communication networks were down. If we can create a cell tower in the sky that allows for comms network to happen, that would actually enable efficient deployment of the supplies and disaster management more effectively. Wow. And the one thing that really stuck out to me that you said was when you said, like, how it can go to the fire, but nobody's in danger, which I think is really cool because nobody has to, like, take a risk and go and see if there's a fire there. The drone can just fly over and see. And I think that's really incredible. So that's really cool. So after a disaster has occurred, like an earthquake or a large fire, how can a drone help with the recovery efforts? So um, that's actually very interesting because what I was indicating earlier, we have different payloads and sensors that can actually detect um, detection of human beings trapped under rubble or um, when disaster happens and you want to rebuild and the rebuild effort that goes in, we're able to monitor and help provide information on how the rebuilding can happen. Also, when um, a disaster happens, the first things that kind of go down are communication networks, right? So, um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, um, if we're able to create 5G 
bubbles or radial communication so that the first responders and others are able to make sure that they're connected and they're able to redirect supplies appropriately. That makes recovery efforts extremely efficient. And we can provide that kind of coverage nonstop. And so that is where at different levels in the disaster management life cycle, we can actually come in and help with the relief efforts or um, you know, after the disaster has happened, management of it. Wow. Drones are doing so many amazing things. It's so great. Okay. So how are you using your drones to fight climate change? So this is a very interesting, it's something very close to my heart. Um, everything is related to data. And we were sitting with National Geospatial Agency, as well as Berkeley Earth, and the ability to actually station keep, what that means is hold a drone in one single place and monitor. So when you have long, uh, drones that can station keep for long durations, you can then stack them up at different altitudes and record different type of data about the environment, about the air conditions, about the gases in there, and then feed that back into systems that can actually process that data and intelligence and churn out what is happening with the uh, climate. Where is this going? How do we prevent certain things? If we have created a change somewhere, if we have reduced emissions somewhere, how does that impact the climate? What is happening? So that kind of monitoring can be enabled at different altitudes, and then that data can be fed into machine learning algorithms so that smart predictions or projections can be made of hey, if this is going to progress this way, this is the impact you're going to feel. This is how the uh, ice caps will melt. All of that data, the more real data you have, the better decisions. And that coupled with geospatial or satellite data that you're getting, and you layer all of that data in to make better decisions. In addition, um, climate change is impacted by various different gases, right? So if you're able to constantly monitor them in, in across large distances, you're able to help feed that back in and support efforts that are actually addressing carbon, um, you know, positive efforts as well as creating carbon neutrality. So there are a lot of different aspects once you're able to monitor. If you're able to monitor, you can control. I can imagine if your drones can help ice caps from melting, you can help the polar bears, right? Yes, absolutely, right? And that is where all of this is connected. It's not one individual. You cause an effect, right? If you can identify the cause, if you can collect the data appropriately and then extrapolate what is, what is that kind of creating for our environment and help protect against that, that's how we're going to counter all of the effects of climate change. That's so great. Okay, so how can your drones help endangered species? So the best example I can take is the work that we're doing in conjunction with Microsoft Project 15, as well as our partners, Zimbezi partners, where Zimbabwe wildlife anti-poaching efforts that we're all involved in, and we're creating the next generation of technology that is actually solving for early detection of poachers, protection of the wildlife that is getting rewilded. So the first park in Zimbabwe that Zimbezi Partners has picked is also involved in rewilding elephants that they have rescued. And in order to protect them from the poachers, we're 
integrating some of the best technologies such as Microsoft's Azure IoT Hub or the best radios and then our UAVs that are flying perpetually long distances, monitoring how the elephants are moving, seeing if there is any kind of disturbance in their movement, feeding that back into the rangers and ensuring that the rangers get to protect the animals before the poachers get to them. And simultaneously, when you're taking away jobs from the poachers, you need to create jobs so that their families are also taken care of. And it's a whole network effect. So when you're working on projects that are working with next generation of technologies, you're also creating jobs in the local markets. And when you're creating jobs in the local markets using cutting edge technologies, you are expanding how those local markets actually can feed themselves and compete with others in the world. So wildlife anti-poaching is one component of it. You are moving the poachers away from the animals and we can help do that. Simultaneously, you're creating jobs within local communities where you are helping these poachers get other types of jobs and still take care of their families. Wow, your drones are so amazing. And it's one of the high-tech technologies that's really saving animals. And one of the other ones is camera traps. And we actually have a learning lab where people can go and get their hands on that technology that is saving animals. So everybody go to the learning lab and you can really get that technology in your hands and learn how it works. Okay, so what advice would you give to a kid who wants to learn more about drones and artificial intelligence? Where can we go to start learning all of these things that you do? So I think the work that you're doing is amazing. Actually talking about how these technologies are applicable to the efforts such as wildlife, poaching, wildlife preservation, climate change monitoring. The first thing where you want to become interested in a technology is again, see the applications speak with the people who are actually solving for those applications. And then there are numerous, numerous Facebook pages. There are a lot of STEM programs that are actually helping kids, both inner city kids, all the kids around the world come in and actually play with technology. There are labs that our schools are creating as well as like I'm part of this Facebook um, group or the clubhouse group called Women Who Drone. Right. So we're actually promoting girls and, and women who are coming in into the drone technology, as well as find mentors. Right. If you find people that are doing things you'd like to do, reach out to them the same way as you reached out to me, Kate. And I appreciate that saying, hey, I'd like to learn more about what you're doing, because um, I used to run this program in New York where we were uh, teaching inner city kids how to ride bikes. It was called Exploring Paths. And essentially, we would take them to various different offices, recording studios, Wall Street, uh, trader desks. Suddenly, when kids and um, are able to see what is possible, your imagination grows. And that's why get involved, ask questions the way you're doing, Kate. I, I really love what you're doing. Thank you. And those Facebook groups sound really amazing. And so where can people go to learn more about you and your work and some of those amazing Facebook pages and other websites that you would recommend? Sure. So I would definitely, my website is Kraus, K-R-A-U-S, aerospace, A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C.com. Um, you will see interesting videos there, a lot of reference to what we spoke about from a technology perspective. I will also send you a list of some of these um, 
websites that you could include as a post following to uh, the discussion we're having here. But as I was mentioning, women who drone, there are a lot of Instagram pages, Facebook pages that talk about uh, drone communities, and you can easily become part of those drone communities and say, I'm interested, whether I'm flying, whether I'm building, whether I'm creating software, and you can learn what is happening in those spaces. Great. And everybody, click on the links below to find all those amazing websites she just talked about, including hers. And Fatima, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to all of our collaborations and fun trips out to Africa. <laughs> Let's go! La, 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 la.